0: Acts chapter 7, and we're reading uh, verses 1 through 53. This is a quite a long passage compared to what we tend to read, uh, but we know that the reading of Scripture is very profitable for us, so this is not time wasted by any means. And let us give our attention, our full attention, to what Stephen proclaims in this message. Let us hear now God's word from Acts 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession, and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God. And after that they shall come out and serve me in this place." Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born. And was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptians. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling plate, dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However... The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Almighty God, we are thankful to hear your word today. And we ask that this message preached long ago would then uh, now come and would preach to us. It would proclaim a word in season, a word that we need to hear, that our hearts would be open, our ears would be ready uh, to receive what you have for us, that we might not be those that are stiff-necked, those that resist your Holy Spirit, but rather that good soil that receives your word and bears fruit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we continue today uh, learning about the short but powerful ministry of Stephen. And as far as uh, messages go in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, this one is the longest uh, by far. It exceeds any of the uh, messages of the apostles that are recorded in the book. And that tells us something. That tells us that this is a very important message in the book of Acts. There's a lot here for us. Now, as great as this message was, it was not received by its hearers. It's very sad when preachers preach and people don't receive the message. We, we pray for a reception of the message. And this was one of the most poorly received messages in history because they killed the preacher. If there's any sign of not receiving the message, it's when you kill the preacher. The irony of this was that they were doing the very thing that Stephen was rebuking them for uh, in the past. He says, you are like your fathers who resist the Holy Spirit, who reject his deliverers and his prophets. And then they killed another of the prophets of God that, that God had sent them, which is Stephen himself. Now, as we look at this message, it's a very long message and there's no way that we can uh, parse every detail of the the text. It's far too long for that. But the reason I did not want to break it up into separate sermons for us is because it's a whole, it's a whole message with a whole point. Uh, And there are certain repeated themes uh, in this sermon that we want to look for. And so we're going to highlight these themes by looking at certain key verses And then, having looked at the different themes that Stephen brings out, we're going to apply his application section, because as he gets to the end of his message, he has very hard words for his hearers. And we need to consider ourselves in light of his severe rebuke that he brings to his hearers, that we may not be those like the generation that heard Stephen's message and rejected it. So let's look at the themes of this message. The three themes that I'm going to highlight are these. The theme number one is that God's people had a long history of rejecting God's deliverers and turning to idols. It was not a good history. They continued to do this over and over again. The second theme is that God's presence is not limited to the temple in Jerusalem. This is relevant because of the charges that were brought against Stephen, that he was against the temple and against the law. And the third theme is that Moses had predicted a prophet like Moses that would arise, which of course is Jesus, our savior. That was Stephen's point. And I wonder if he would have preached more to them if he hadn't been killed in the process because he didn't even get to name Jesus yet in the message. And yet that, of course, is the point. So those will be the three themes that we're going to look at, but I also want to give you just a few observations first on the shape of this message. What is this message like? The first observation I would offer on the nature of the sermon is that it is a biblical message. That should be clear in terms of the content of it. Stephen's preaching is based upon an exposition of the word of God and then applying that to his hearers. And, of course, this is the pattern of the apostles' preaching. They they preach the word of God. They're they're declaring what God's word had already said. And in the case of the apostles, they're bringing that new covenant revelation to God's people. But their messages were always fundamentally biblical messages. They're based upon the word of God. And so also we model our preaching after that form. We preach God's word. We exposit it. We apply it to our hearers. The second observation is that Stephen's message is a history message. A lot of history in this uh, message. You might wonder, why did these people need to hear this history once again? I mean, don't don't the uh, leaders of Israel, as well as pretty much every layperson in Israel, don't they know this history? This is like standard stuff. This is what every child in Israel would have been taught about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Egypt and Moses Well, I think Stephen is preaching a history message because they haven't grasped the implications of their history. That is sometimes the case for us. We might know facts about history. We might know facts about the Bible's history, but we don't get what that history is teaching us. And so it was for Stephen's hearers. They were not taking into account how much like how much like they were that previous generation. Stephen's hearers were afflicted with the same bad spiritual condition of rejecting God's words, rejecting God's prophets. That this was history they needed to pay attention to. And, and for us as well, brothers and sisters, we need to know our history. That is, we need to know the history of the Lord as revealed in the scriptures. This history is foundational to who we are and how we think about ourselves and and we are warned by history. We are warned by negative examples. And then we're also strengthened by positive examples in biblical history of men, of, men and women of faith and, and men and women of love and how they followed their God. In either case, biblical history should be important to us. The third observation of, uh, on the shape of this message that I would offer to you is that biblical preaching is applicational in nature. Stephen is not rehearsing all of these facts of history simply for the sake of review, simply for the sake of knowledge. Stephen is bringing that history to bear upon the hearts of those who are hearing him. And so whenever we bring forth the word of God, we are not content to simply tell you what it says, but we want to bring it to you. We want it to penetrate your heart. We want it to cut Uh, and divide uh, soul and spirit joint and marrow as that word is intended to do. Uh, The word is meant to be applied to us. So we'll we'll think about those uh, patterns as we look at the themes now in Stephen's message. So let's uh, next look at the first theme of Stephen's message, this, this very sad uh, checkered history of God's people. They had a very bad pattern and precedent. Time and time again, they had rejected those deliverers that God sent them. He would send these people, and may, they might receive these deliverers for a time, but then in the process, they push back on them, they would reject them, and so often as they did that, they would then turn to idols, Uh, And we see this with the history of the prophets, for example. He doesn't mention Elijah as much, but Elijah is a good example of a man of God who is sent to declare God's truth, uh, to turn Israel back to the Lord, and yet there's a rejection and a turning to idolatry. Now, the figures that Stephen highlights are particularly two. the, The two that are rejected are Joseph and Moses. Now Joseph doesn't get a lot of attention, but you'll notice that that is the first figure in biblical history that the, the patriarchs, the fathers, reject, at least temporarily. They're not very kind to Joseph, even though Joseph is a prophet of sorts. He's revealing the future and through his dreams, and they didn't like that. And look at Acts 7, verses 9 through 10. He says, "...the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt." but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now it's noteworthy that Stephen begins here because it was out of envy, we are told, that the people rejected Christ. It was out of envy that they delivered him over to be crucified. They rejected their deliverer, and Joseph here was rejected by his brethren course, God had a purpose in that. God's going to send him to Egypt, and that's going to be part of God's redemptive plan. But they, they did reject Joseph, whom they would eventually have to respect as somebody that God had set up as a deliverer through the famine. So Joseph is mentioned briefly, but Moses, of course, gets most of the attention. There's a lot about Moses And the reason there's a lot about Moses, I think, is because Stephen had been charged with blaspheming the law and blaspheming God and rejecting Moses. And so Stephen is going to say, I'm not rejecting Moses, it's you all who are rejecting Moses. So look at what verses 23 through 25 say in Stephen's message. And you'll notice this is exactly where Stephen wants them to get. You people, you people of Israel have a problem, and your problem is that you keep missing God's deliverers. You keep rejecting them in the process. It says, When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Now notice, this is what Stephen's going to highlight next. Verse 25 For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And so even here, Moses has not yet led the people out of Egypt. There's been no plagues yet. This is early in Moses' history. But Stephen is saying that Moses thought they would grasp that he was the appointed deliverer, but they weren't impressed by him at all, right? They said, who who are you? We're not going to listen to you. And that was just a little microcosm of the rejections that would follow as Moses tried to lead this very stubborn and rebellious people out of Egypt. And there's many instances in the sermon about this rejection of Moses, but I'll just read one more here in verses 35 through 36. And notice how Stephen, he juxtaposes how they reject him, they reject Moses, but that Moses delivers them. That's the juxtaposition. They they reject God's deliverer. But God still delivers them through this deliverer. Verse verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. Now, this was standard history for the the rulers and for all the people of Israel. They would have said probably to Stephen, Yeah, I know that, Stephen. Yes, I remember that event. I know how they rejected Moses. Yes, I know how they made a golden calf. What's the point, Stephen? Well, what do you think the point is? The, the, The implication is, if your forefathers had such a problem with receiving God's deliverers and rejecting them and turning to idolatry, is it possible that you have done so again. That's the implication. If you'd rejected Moses, whom you seem to respect so much, if your forefathers rejected Moses, is it possible that you have rejected the one Moses talked about was coming? And of course, the answer was that's exactly what they were doing. Not only did they reject God's deliverers and reject God's prophets, but they then turn to idols. And that's what happens if you reject God's salvation and God's truth. What's left for you? There's nothing left for you except to worship false gods, false religions, false worldviews. And that's what Stephen highlights in verse 41. He he reminds them of the very painful moment in Old Testament history where in the process of redemption, at the foot of Mount Sinai, when the covenant of God is being delivered, They're turning to idols. Think about like the worst time to turn to idolatry is when God is telling you from the mountain, you shall have no other gods before me. What a revelation that is of the human heart. So they had turned to these idols. They had made the golden calf, which they claimed was a representation of the God who had delivered them from Egypt, but was nevertheless a a, a heinous violation of God's law and an idol for sure. And this problem, as we as we look at the spiritual problem, rejecting God's deliverers, rejecting God's prophets, turning to idols, do you think that this heart problem that we see in Stephen's heres is a reality that faces people today? Is this still a problem? I believe Old Testament history is just reflecting the heart problem that is perpetual in nature. Every generation of human history reveals this same pattern. If you do not receive God's salvation, if you do not receive his word, which reveals his salvation, you will turn to idols. It's inevitable. There's no other option for you. You were made to be a dependent worshiper, and you will worship something, even if you worship yourself. Learning this about the human heart is very important for us because if we know this about the human heart, that will help us not to have too high an estimation of our heart's purity. This is, I think, what the people of Stephen's day had missed, what his hearers did not grasp. They, they believed, I think, that their hearts were pure of idolatry. I think they they prided themselves on their respect for the law of God, right? They, they were those that revered the law of Moses. Who of all people would struggle with idolatry? They, they would think we are those that are the most purified from these issues. But brothers and sisters, they were not free of idolatry. What was it that caused them to reject the Messiah, the appointed deliverer that had been sent to them? Why did they reject Christ? Was it an intellectual problem? Did they struggle to put all of the puzzle pieces together? And if they had just received a little bit more teaching, they would have received it, because it's, it's clear if they had had the right knowledge. I don't really think it was fundamentally an intellectual problem for them. I, they, these were smart people, especially the leaders of Israel, they were the most learned men of their day. They, they of all people should have grasped the, the truth of the facts laid before them. I don't think it was a problem of evidence either because the miracles of Christ and the preaching of Christ was well known throughout Israel. Many of these leaders had witnessed what Jesus had done. Sometimes they even acknowledged that he did miracles. They didn't always explain it away, but they still didn't receive him. Their problem, the reason that they rejected Christ, was not fundamentally an intellectual problem. It was not an issue of evidence. It was a heart issue. Jesus said in John 5, verse 44, that the reason that they could not believe, the reason that they were unable to believe the truth, was because they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. That was at least one of their heart issues. They, they loved the praise of men. They loved their own glory. They could not see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ because of their sin of idolatry within their hearts. And they envied Christ. They, they didn't like the fact that so many people ran after Jesus. I mean, if you love the praise of men, and everybody's running after this other guy, what do you think of that other guy? You want him to be off the scene, and if necessary murdered and killed. And so they had this idolatrous desire for the approval of men, for power. And Jesus said they were lovers of money as well. So we know that wealth was another heart idol that tugged upon them. And Jesus ran into all of this. Jesus was the antithesis to all that their hearts loved. And so naturally they would have to hate Christ. And to this present day, there are many who reject the Messiah because of the very same heart idolatries that these people had. They don't like Jesus, and they didn't like Stephen either, who preached Jesus, and that led to Stephen's death. You see the outcome of those idols that were controlling them. And so, as Stephen brought to bear this message and said, you remember how often the people of God turned to idols And then he tells them that they're the stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, resistant to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't go well, because their hearts have not been softened to the truth of God's word. And so what do we learn from all of this? Well, what we learn is that we ought not to trust our own hearts, brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God that part of the redemption that Jesus brings to us is the purification of our hearts. Our hearts are cleansed of idolatry by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, but be aware that that process is still in play, even even as a Christian. And we, we risk these very same things that Stephen warned about. We, too, have the ability to reject God's truth to harden our hearts to turn to idols and all of these things are uh, things that we ought to be on guard against that's why Hebrews 3 verse 12 says beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God there's that unbelief matter that we focused upon earlier unbelief at God's salvation and his word leads to idolatry so that's the first theme Now we move to the second theme, that God's presence is not limited to the temple. This was relevant for a few reasons, because first of all, Stephen had been charged with Jesus' prediction that the temple would be destroyed, and indeed that was actually a, a true charge. Jesus had said the temple would be destroyed a number of times in his ministry, So that was a true charge, but the problem was that the people of Stephen's day, they had a wrong understanding of the temple's purpose. And they did not yet see how the temple had now been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who had now established his body, which is his temple. And so he deals with some of these matters of the presence of God and the relationship of God's presence to the temple. And so let's look at a few of the details that he has for us here. One of the ways that Stephen addresses this wrong understanding of the temple is to point out how many times in biblical history God appeared to his people not in the temple, It should be obvious as you review biblical history that God was never limited to this rectangular structure. He could transcend that at any point. He could reveal himself in any way he chose to his people. And so in the very second verse of the the passage, look at the very first appearance of the Lord to Abraham. It says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. You scroll down a bit, down to verse 30 or 33, looking down at the page, notice the word appeared uh, happens again here. It says uh, of Moses that when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. This was an important reminder because if the people of Israel in Stephen's day had decided in their minds that the only place that God's holy presence could be manifested in the entire world was in this rectangular structure, they needed to remember that the holiness of God, the presence of God had appeared in the desert, in a bush, in a place of rocks and dirt. God's presence was there and it was holy because God had revealed himself to his people And so the temple was becoming much overestimated in their conception. They were not understanding the purpose of this temple. And and he reminds them even that when Solomon built the temple, he says, yes, Solomon built up a temple, but notice what the prophets say about the temple and about God's presence in it. Because after this temple was built, the people began, I think, to some degree in their minds, perhaps, to idolize this structure and miss the fact that God was not limited by it. And so he quotes from um, the prophet Isaiah in verses 48 through 50. Uh, he, He reminds them, he says, The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? What is the point that the Lord makes through the prophet here? The point is that if the entire created universe functions as God's footstool, something that is his leg, not literally speaking, but in terms of the imagery, his leg rests upon, then how could you ever build a structure that could fit God? How could you ever bring the infinite omnipresent existence of God and suck it down into a tiny, really a tiny rectangular structure in Jerusalem. That doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous to think that you could limit God's presence or encase God's presence in this little structure. The fact that God's presence was revealed in the temple was an act of gracious uh, coming down of the Lord to his people. He was gracious to them to dwell with them through that means. But he was never limited by it. He was always so far above it. Now, perhaps if Stephen's message had not been cut short, maybe he would have told them more about what this means. I wonder what Stephen would have preached if he had not been killed in the process, because there's so much more you could say about all of this. Maybe Stephen would have said, now let me tell you about Emmanuel, God with us. Let me tell you about What the temple was about, how it pointed to Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of all that the temple proclaimed. And let me remind you of how the veil in the temple was torn, showing us that we have access uh, into the Holy of Holies through Christ. Like he could have said all of this, as the rest of the New Testament tells us. And the point of all this is you all need to move beyond the temple, the temple has been fulfilled. Now, have you ever seen, if you've walked into a, a business uh, or, or a church, sometimes when they're doing a building project, they will have these really beautifully constructed models of what they're going to build. Have you seen this before? I remember being in a church once where they had the big building project, and not only did you get to see the blueprints, but they even had one of these wonderfully constructed little models created that showed you the whole structure. And I remember as a kid looking at those and appreciating that. It's just a lot of detail there, and it gets you excited about the new building. Well, the idea, I think, is that they actually needed to see Herod's most glorious, majestic temple as being like one of those little models. And that was probably really hard for them to grasp, because it was much more impressive than a little table model of something. But the spiritual reality was The temple that was built in Jerusalem was just a little model of the heavenly real one that had now come in Jesus Christ. And so if you were to build this great majestic structure like a new church building and everybody was just enamored with the model but would not go into the actual building, you'd think you've missed it. The whole point of the model was to tell us about the real structure. Let's go enjoy the real structure. And that, I think, is what had happened with the people of Israel at this point. They were so enamored with Herod's glorious, majestic temple, which was an impressive structure in terms of human structures, but it was nothing compared to the greater reality that was now fulfilled in Christ. Jesus has now gone into the heavenly tabernacle to fulfill all that the law demanded. He is interceding for us at the right hand of God, and he has established in the entire earth... His holy dwelling place, and you know what it is called? It is called the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 22, uh, Paul writes about how the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ is the cornerstone. And then in verse 22, it says, "...in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." And so, brothers and sisters, we have the reality that the temple pointed forward to. We don't need that physical rectangular structure in Jerusalem anymore. And so they needed to grasp this as well. We move on to the third theme. Moses had predicted a prophet like him would arise. This was relevant because Stephen had been accused of blaspheming the law and rejecting Moses, and so Stephen now says, no, let me tell you, Moses had predicted that this day would come, and Moses said that a prophet like him would arise, and the implication, of course, is that that prophet has arisen. Stephen gives much attention to Moses in this regard, and one of the notable connections between Moses and Christ is that both of them were attested by God through their signs and wonders. You'll notice in verse 36 that Stephen highlights Moses as one through whom God brought signs and wonders. It says, He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Now, I think it's relevant to point this out because if you look at chapter 2 of Acts, back in Peter's sermon on Pentecost, and you look at verse 22 of Peter's sermon... What does Peter highlight about how Jesus' identity was confirmed outwardly? What Peter says in his sermon is this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And if you link those two verses together, I think what we are to see is that this is one of the ways in which Christ was like Moses. He had been attested by God through signs and wonders that all the people had seen, and it was a validation, uh, an outward validation of the fact that he was the prophet of God who had come to bring God's salvation. Now... What uh, Stephen quotes from Deuteronomy is the words of Deuteronomy 18. This was Moses' prediction that a prophet was going to come that would be like him. And not just a line of prophets. You could say, okay, there's plenty of prophets that came along. But the prophet, definite article, the prophet. And in fact, the, you remember the uh, Jewish leaders came to John, and, and I think they were asking about Deuteronomy 18. They said, are you uh, Elijah, or are you... Uh, The prophet, are you that one that Moses had predicted? And John the Baptist said, no, but there's another one coming. So what did verse 37 in our text say? He, He quotes Deuteronomy 18. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, what was Moses' command? So if you're thinking, what does it mean to be obedient to the law of Moses? That was one of the charges brought against Stephen, is that he was a a violator of the law of Moses. But what Stephen is going to do, very uh, ingeniously, we might say, guided by the Spirit, is to actually tell Stephen's hearers, you are disobeying Moses. How are they disobeying Moses? Moses said, when that prophet comes, you will listen to him. And that's exactly what they had not done. This is the irony that that Stephen is declaring. He says, you are the breakers of Moses' law because you are not listening to the prophet that Moses told you to listen to. And so this is a very important consideration for us, brothers and sisters, that as we hear Stephen's message, as we consider the words of Moses, who is a true prophet of God, he has told us something. He has said to us and commanded us, listen to the prophet God sends, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to him that we must listen. And you know that the two times in Uh, the, the Gospels where the Father in heaven speaks audibly. What were the two things that God the Father said? Listen to him. Hear him. That was the message. Pay attention to what Jesus says. And so we must consider ourselves. Have we heard the voice of Christ? Are we listening to his words right now? Are we considering what he has to say to us? Our Lord Jesus speaks with the highest authority because he is the Son of God. He has greater authority than any prophet that ever came before him because he is the final prophet. God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. And it is to him that we must listen. Now, if we were to take all three themes that I have highlighted, what are the applications of these three themes? We're going to summarize the applications of the themes, and then we will look at Stephen's very direct words to his hearers. So let me summarize these for you. First, since God's people have this ongoing pattern of rejecting their deliverers, Stephen's hearers and we ourselves should consider, are we rejecting God's deliverer again? This is a reality that has to be faced by every one of us that we ask. Am I receiving the deliverer that God has sent? Secondly, since God's presence is not limited to the temple, we should not make an idol of any physical place or ordinance of worship, even the temple which was originally ordained by God. We should find in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of that sacred space. Thirdly, since Moses predicted a prophet like him to arise... And since Jesus was so evidently a man attested by signs and wonders, and one who miraculously rose from the dead, we should receive Jesus as the anointed deliverer of God's people. So those are the themes. Now, there are other themes in the message, but I think these are important to highlight. They do reoccur a number of times. Now we move to the final words of Stephen's sermon, and they come like sharp swords, but with love. Uh, They are loving but painful words for Stephen's hearers. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law, By the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now it's possible, as I said, that Stephen would have had more to say, but his application section of his message was cut short by what took place. They would not hear it, they would not even let him finish what he had to say. This is the most obvious sign of their rejection, is killing the messenger. Even as they're being rebuked for killing God's messengers, they kill another of God's messengers. Look at the hard-heartedness. Are you paying attention to what's happening here? And so as we look at Stephen's words of rebuke, it's good for us to ask the question, am I like, in any way, the generation that Stephen preached to? Now, as I say that, I, I don't say that because anytime we preach to this congregation, we have the sense that everybody's rejecting the word of God in some direct outward way. And uh, it's not that there's any sense of that as I, I ask this question, but I do know that all of us at different times in our Christian life, or for those who are not Christians, but for us who are Christians, there are going to be times where we are resistant to the word of God. It may not be all the time, uh, but there are times where any one of us can resist something that God has to say to us, especially when it hits us at that point that is most painful for us. The other risk, of course, is that we listen to the word of God every Sunday, and it doesn't make any impact on us. We're just kind of uh, lifeless, and we, we... don't care about what we're hearing and it's just another message that just goes in one ear and out the other and it has no effect. That, that also would be a, a serious thing for us to be on guard against because we need to recognize that every single time we hear the word of God proclaimed or read or we read it ourselves, we are accountable to God for our response to it. God is speaking to us in his word. He speaks to us in the present tense. Even though this is a message that was preached 2,000 years ago, the word of God is living and active, and it speaks to every single one of us, and we are accountable for what we do with it. And what does it mean to rightly receive the word of God? Well, the first thing that the word of God demands of us anytime we hear it is faith. Faith. We receive the word rightly when we believe it as the word of God, when we really believe it. Now, also part of the right hearing of the word involves repentance at times. Repentance involves a change of mind fundamentally, and there's a sense in which every time we hear the word of God, it's calling us to repentance because there's some way or another our minds need to be renewed. They need to be changed from the way they are thinking in some way or another. Another way in which the Word of God uh, speaks to us and demands something from us is that it demands from us obedience. We're called to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. James says that you'd be like one that looks in a mirror and forgets everything that's wrong with you as you look at yourself in the mirror and you walk away and you do nothing about it. We are called to bring forth fruit as we hear the Word of God. That's the right reception of the word in the parable of the sower, right? There's the different soils. And then what does the good soil do? It brings forth fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. I want to read to you the Westminster Larger Catechism. It gives some good summary for us. What is required of us when we hear the word preached? And by extension, I would say anytime you read the word, uh, if you're reading it as a family together, it's it's this case for all of us, uh, young and old, that the word demands these things from us. Question 160, what is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? It does not appear, if we were to take the catechism's uh, guidance here, that you can merely be passive in hearing the word. This involves quite a bit. You're supposed to diligently prepare and pray. You're to actually look at what you're hearing, or listen to what you're hearing, and look at how it compares to the scriptures, like the Bereans, And then you need to receive it. You receive it in faith. You receive it in love. You receive it with humility. And then you are to think about it. You're to remember it. And then you're to go and do in light of it whatever it has given you to do. Well, I don't think it's uh, uh, difficult to say that Stephen's hearers are the exact opposite of what the catechism says to do. They did not receive it with meekness. They did not receive it with faith. They did not hide it in their hearts. They, they did not want to hear any bit of it. What does Stephen say about them? How does he describe them? He says they were stiff-necked. It was, they had this unbendable neck. They couldn't move at all. It was so stiff. It's like a, The idea is one of defiance. I will not move. I will not listen. I will not do what you say. I mean, kids even know this principle, right? If they go stiff when you're trying to tell them to go somewhere or take them somewhere, they'll just go stiff, and they don't receive what you're telling them to do. It's not a good sign. Stiff-necked means you are unwilling to be corrected. You don't want correction at all. He says they were uncircumcised in ears. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, that, of course, went back to the Old Testament descriptions of how circumcision was meant to be a sign of, of a cleansed heart. And it involved a humility now to walk in God's ways. So when he says you're uncircumcised in your ears, he's saying you're acting like unbelieving pagans as you hear the word of God. And that's not a good sign for God's people. They're not to be uncircumcised in the ear. And he says... You're resistant to the Holy Spirit, that that spirit that was sent to convict the world of righteousness and sin and judgment. They are putting their hands up and saying, I want to have nothing to do with what the Holy Spirit is doing here. Even though the Holy Spirit has come not only to minister conviction, but also minister assurance when that word is received. So I want us to honestly and soberly consider about ourselves, how much am I like Stephen's generation? Am I like Stephen's generation? May it not be so, but may we consider the ways in which we can be like this. Are you a correctable person? You can't claim to be a receiver and a willing hearer of God's word and resist that word. You can't be stiff-necked. You can't be unwilling to be corrected because the The word of God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, was given for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. That is, the very purpose for which the scriptures are given is not only instruction, but also correction, rebuke. And so part of faithful preaching and hearing is that we are constantly being corrected by the word of God. And that is not something to be resisted, it's not something to be... um, scared of, it is something to see as a great blessing that God has given us. As Proverbs 29 says, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. That, that's the consequences of being stiff-necked is destruction. And so they had resisted the Holy Spirit as well and, and we read in our scripture reading of how God's people had done this in the past and, and in Isaiah 63, what the prophet is reminding God's people of is how God had so loved them. He had redeemed them. He had given them his Holy Spirit, but they rebelled and grieved the Spirit of God. Isaiah 63, verse 9, it speaks of God's love first. It says, In his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. And you know that the, the language of grieving the Holy Spirit, it is applied as a potential risk for God's redeemed people in Ephesians. We don't read this simply as a, a totally apostate people that never turned back to God. It is possible for God's redeemed people, any of us, to grieve the Holy Spirit that we have received as a seal of our redemption. God has mercifully redeemed us. He's granted us saving faith. He's called us out of darkness into light. He's given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment of the guarantee of our inheritance. And then we can resist and grieve the Holy Spirit by pushing back against all that God has called us to do. By not repenting, by not being correctable. Let us remember that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in and among God's people to bring forth the fruit of true holiness within us. The Spirit comes to teach and to illuminate and to make us holy. And so when we say, I don't want your teaching, I don't want to grow, I want to have nothing to do with what you have to say to me, Lord, that is grievous to the Holy Spirit of God. And so all of this, as we we think about the application, we, we need to remember these themes that Stephen has proclaimed. They're very basic and important gospel themes. And we need to also remember Stephen's rebuke, and as we bring that word to bear upon ourselves, we ask, Lord, give me a humble heart. Teach me, Lord, make me not to be one that is stiff-necked, one that resists at any point the the correcting counsels of your word, but one who receives all that the word of God has to say, And, and above all, that we would never reject or we would never slight the deliverer that God has given us. We can do this when we slight the work of Christ. I don't think that we always do this very openly. I, I'm not, I haven't been in many contexts of discussion and, and, uh, amongst our families where I, I hear people say, I just don't think Jesus is that great of a savior. I, mean, I, I don't hear people say that usually. That's not usually how this slighting happens. But how does it come out? it comes out by our unbelief that Christ really can save us. Maybe we don't say it. Maybe we don't say, I just don't believe that Jesus really is that great of a savior, but we, we doubt the promises of God. We doubt that God can or will help us. We perhaps doubt the love of God for us as revealed in the gospel. There's a variety of ways, I think, in which this slighting or rejecting of God's deliverer can come about. And may it not be so. May we exalt Christ in our thinking, and in our words, and our in our belief, uh, and may we take into account all that Stephen has said to us today. And so Stephen has told us that Jesus is God's anointed deliverer for us. Jesus is God with us, and Jesus is the ultimate, the final prophet who is speaking God's truth to us. And so may it be that we receive all that God has said of His Son. This morning, let us pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you for this word that uh, speaks to us and to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would correct any wrong thinking, any spiritual problems that reside within us that would cause us to in any way turn or in any way diminish what you have done for us. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit that we might receive this word and that it might bring forth fruit in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.